good people in good organizations doing good things create the conditions in which organizations are unable to change. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here is your host, Chantal Nash, Digital Learning and Engagement Manager from the team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a few minutes at the beginning of today's episode to first and foremost tell you that it's an exciting episode because we have Julian Stodd, who was the first person to ever be on the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast. So it was really good to be able to catch up with him and the work that he's been doing in the year plus since we first spoke. And I also wanted to just give a shout out to all of the listeners that continue tuning in to our podcast. I see we've got listeners in France, India, Singapore, the UK, Angola, Canada. We are hitting all areas of the globe and we thank each and every one of you for tuning in to the podcast. Do feel free to give us feedback. You can email me at chantel.nash at ge.com. If you're not sure how to spell my name, check the series description. That will be easier than me spelling it out. And we'd love to hear your feedback on the episodes. Maybe you have a suggestion for a guest that you think our listeners would love. Send it my way. And if you're an iTunes user, we would really appreciate your reviews, sharing the episodes or the podcast series with a friend. It really will help us out. Also, I want to highlight that GetAbstract.com, the world's largest library of business book summaries, will soon have a summary of Julian Stodd's Social Leadership Handbook. In the meantime, if you want to check out what they have available, there is a summary related to the topics we're talking about in today's episode as well called Leadership, Reinventing Leadership for the Age of Mass Collaboration. So check it out, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So Julian, I am just thrilled to have you here. I've been looking forward to talking with you again for a really long time. I always think about you. So um, it's been great to be able to get some of your time and have you back. That's a pleasure. It's great to be back. And uh, I always uh, I always smile, actually, because whenever I am traveling and I find myself in a, a corner of an airport lounge, I quite often just look at the traffic on the blog and I quite regularly notice uh, a few people coming through from uh, GE. So that's always that always makes me think of all the great work that you're doing over there. Absolutely. We love your work. And um, just in case, you know, people, because uh, when we first had you, you were our, you were exactly our first podcast guest when we launched the podcast. <laughs> so it is particularly special to have you back. And for people who may not be familiar with you, Julian is the author of the Social Leadership Handbook and Exploring the World of Social Learning. So he is really leading the social age movement. He is the founder of Sea Salt Learning and is a writer, artist, consultant, and the one that I love the most is Explorer, is how he describes himself. Um, so, but really the topics that Julian covers are change, trust, community, technology and innovation and how all of that fits in. And so, of course, for an organization like ours, all of that is really, really relevant and for many other organizations as well. So in our episode today, we hope to catch up with more of what you've been doing and some of maybe some of the stuff, new stuff you've been doing with some organizations and um, just continue learning from you. Awesome. That sounds uh, that sounds fun. And, you know, since we last spoke, I've been uh, really progressing a number of, of, of strands uh, quite far. And, and of course, as I listened to your kind introduction there, I realized that you, you paint the picture of a generalist. And, and, and I am, you know, I'm I'm happy to be a, a generalist because we live in a we live in an age that rewards generalism. You know, we're, we're generally seeing a, a, an erosion of, um, of domains in many ways, domains of expertise, domains of manufacturing, uh, domains of organization are substantially being eroded. And the differentiating skills are really the abilities to cross-connect, the ability to become more interconnected uh, as an individual through our communities and for our organizations to be more interconnected. You know, I strongly suspect that, that most of our wonderful organizations in the world today have all of the talent and brilliance they need to be even more successful. They just need to earn the right to, to unlock it. And uh, that's really where a lot of my, my work takes me is, you know, how to create the conditions 
in which excellence can emerge? How do we create the conditions in which we get to hear the stories that we need to hear? Um, and so that's uh, that's where my focus is these days. And I love that creating the conditions and being aware of the conditions too that cause a lot of the behaviors and things that we see in our organizations that are, are making some impact. Um, and when you talk about the generalist aspect of things, it also kind of reminds me of this concept of skill stacking, which uh, it goes kind of to the same idea that there are, of course, in the world today, a lot of different areas of focus. And even as we talked leading up to pressing record here, a lot of the topics are intertwined. You know, nothing is like, let's just talk about trust today. There's so many elements of that, you know, the change, the communities, technology, everything kind of feeds into that. And so I love how you have approached this, as you call it, in a generalist way, because it does allow for that, that exploration of how all of those things overlap and really work together. So I love that. So tell us what you've been doing. Uh, you have a new book that has just come out called The Trust Sketchbook. So Tell us a little bit about that. Cool. Well, that's it's, it's quite a good time to tell you about that, actually, because uh, that's what I've been uh, one of the streams I've been working on substantially since we spoke last. And it's probably worth me saying my, my work happens across three levels, really. Uh, so I, I'm an evidence based practitioner. You know, I have a research basis to my work, uh, looking at what's been done before and carrying out this sort of creative research uh, throughout uh, different communities globally. So for the last two years, I've been running the Landscape of Trust Research Project, which is the, the largest research project in the world, looking at trust mm -hmm. within communities, in organizations, um, within teams. And the second part of my work is in trying to sketch up and tell a story of what it actually means. So you can go out and, and do the research, but then you have to build models, abstractions, visualizations. And that's kind of where a lot of my community knows me from, is from that work, just working out loud every day, sharing my own evolving picture and understanding. So I've been very much focused on taking some of that research and using it to, to help build a picture of how does trust work in organizations uh, based on, on the research methodology, how people describe it working. And then the third part, and the, the part which I feel sort of luckiest about, is I get to put it into practice fast. So I put all of my work into practice fast, which is another way of saying I wade into making mistakes pretty rapidly. Um, and I'm fortunate that, that many of um, the, the, uh, the layer of community I call them the, the navigators, organizations that are kind of brave, adventurous, or desperate enough to wade in with me, um, are, are willing to, to do that learning, because you have to learn. Uh, it's it's really clear to me nobody has an answer to you know how we survive and thrive in the social age there is no one piece of technology or no no one magic solution we have to learn what will work and that's what i've been doing with trust so the trust uh research project takes a global view of how trust operates what how does trust operate between you and me between mm -hmm. two people how does it operate within communities and teams? And how does it happen within the context of an organization? How does it grow? How does it flow? Where is it held? How can we create the conditions for an organization to operate with more trust? How can we create uh, development programs for leaders to lead with trust? And the, the reason why this is complex is because the first thing that became very clear to me is that trust isn't really a thing mm. um, by, by which I mean it's not like um, a brick you know a, a brick is a thing uh, I, I, I've been doing some building work around here so there's a stack of bricks uh, <laughs> out the back of my house I can I could go and pick up a brick I could weigh it I could measure it I could uh, courier it over to you at great expense and you could have a look at it and you'd be looking at the same brick as me trust doesn't work like that mm -hmm. so the, the research is based in stories people writing stories they write uh, this is what trust means to me this is how trust grows this is how trust breaks this is how much i trust my computer this is how much i trust my parents this is how much i trust my manager you know they write a whole series of stories and we analyze those mm -hmm. and people tell a really broad range of stories about how trust works broad and, and often contradictory so some people say trust is a matter of belief 
I meet you, I, I like you, I believe in you, so I trust you. Some people say, eh, trust is, is more transactional than that. You know, if, if you act towards me in a certain way, I'll act towards you in a certain way. And we become trusted through our actions. Mm-hmm. Some people say trust is like love. You know, you can't put your finger on it. It just happens. Some people say trust takes, uh, you know, years to build, whilst others describe situations in which trust formed instantly. So there's a lot of um, subjectivity about how we understand trust. But there are also um, some things which seem reasonably clear. And I'll, I'll share a few of the results with you, which is what really piqued my interest yeah. around it. The first is that in, in the prototype study, which was 5,000 people globally, okay. 54% of people, so 54% said they had low or no trust in the organization that they worked for. Mm. And and that seemed quite high to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, to be clear, these aren't people saying, I hate my organization. Sure. They're, they're, they're people who say, no, I like it. It's good. I, I turn up. You know, I smile at people. I, I, I go to the Christmas party. I do my job. But I don't fully trust the organization. And when I started diving into that, well, you know, what does that mean if you don't trust them? You know, what what are the things that you don't do when trust is lacking? And the things they say that they don't do, uh, they don't try to help other people be successful. They don't try to share their own learning. They don't uh, believe that they have opportunity within the organization. Funnily enough, only 14% of those people said they're more likely to leave. And that leaves you with a sort of quite interesting situation mm-hmm. where you've got quite a lot of people who, who tip up, you know, they'll do a, 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 a job, but they're not necessarily invested in the organization. So they're not planning to leave anytime soon, mm-hmm. but neither are they investing everything that they could. Right. And the funny thing is, People want to invest. So, you know, when I ask people, um, you know, if the organization trusted you, if you had a strong trusting relationship into your organization, how would that be manifest? And uh, over 50 percent, just under 60 percent of people said it would be my experience of it would be freedom. I would have a freedom mm. to shape the future of my role. I would have a freedom to connect, to learn, to do things differently, to run experiments. So it's it's interesting to me that you, you, we kind of have organizations that want engagement and we have individuals who kind of want to engage. And so perhaps as we try to build more trust into organizations, we just have to learn how to unlock that, you know, how to actually act in ways that that foster and encourage trust to yeah. to flow. Well, and what strikes me about this, it really reminds me of that quote um, about organizations sort of being afraid to develop their people and then what if they leave? And then the other side of that, well, what if we don't develop them and then they stay? And it seems like that's exactly what's happening. There's, in a way, there's this opportunity here but it's not happening. People aren't trusting, but they're still staying in the organization. And so I'm interested if you have found any residual impacts of that, of of what kinds of behaviors and impacts are there on an organization when there are people there who are staying yet not having that trust. Absolutely. And, and there's an interesting nuance here uh, as we start to sort of delve deeper into this landscape which is it's not that people aren't trusting. Their trust is held somewhere differently. Mm. And the place it seems to be held is in a local tribe. So one of the big uh, early conclusions that I, I drew from the stories that people were sharing is this. There's almost certainly different levels of the social structure of an organization. Um In fact, I've written about it as cultural alignment. So when people join an organization, for sure, they join the formal structure of an organization and they join with a contract and a position in the hierarchy and a a formal role. But they also join a local tribe. And that tribe is the people who sit next to them, the people they're with on, on a webinar with on day one. They are the people with whom they form a primary cultural alignment. 
the primary cultural alignment seems to form in the first hours into days into weeks. It forms very fast and it forms according to the social capabilities that we've all mastered from an early age mm-hmm. that we've learned as we've grown up. You know, you, you meet people, you try not to be an idiot, you hope they don't judge you <laughs> and you hope that they'll be your friend. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's broadly what happens. And, and it is a really interesting thing. So people do that. I, you know, pretty much everybody in your organization belongs to a tribe. Your, your organization is, is both a formal structure. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an organization chart somewhere that somebody understands that shows how every single person sits within a structure of power and a hierarchy, who can apply consequence onto other people, who reports to whom, you know, all of that is in your org chart. In parallel to that, you have a radically complicated social structure, a tribal structure, mm-hmm. where you, you, you belong to multiple different tribes, some of which overlap, some of which have visibility of others, some of which have no visibility of others. And trust predominantly seems to sit in that local structure. Now, some people over what they describe as months into years, build a kind of global understanding. I usually refer to it as a kind of geopolitical understanding of the organization as a whole. These are people who are able to reach out, to connect, to be influential at scale. But I strongly suspect not everybody does. Many people probably go their whole time with an organization existing in a high-trusted network that just happens to be hyper-local. They never form that secondary Mm. cultural alignment. And when they say they don't trust the organization, what they mean is, I'm sure they trust their local tribe, but they don't have that sort of global context of trust. So much of what we should be doing as we try to build a more socially dynamic organization is create the opportunities for interconnection. And the, the funny thing about that is it requires us to engage in areas of difference. It requires us to engage not just with people that we know and like doing things that we understand well. It requires us to engage with people who we disagree with, maybe don't even trust, doing things which are extremely difficult and maybe outside our everyday operational experience. And that's why trust almost certainly ties closely into the overall agility of an organization and its ability to change. Because when you when you don't have trust flowing globally, when it sits predominantly in local units, those local units can easily become constrained and resist change. Yeah, and what you're talking about right now also seems to explain um, at a deeper level than, than typically is um, described the internal competition that organizations have. And I mean, I'll, I think it's not really a secret that um, GE is one of those companies where we have a lot of high-performing people and teams, but we tend to compete with ourselves internally a lot. Um, and it, it's, I think it is because, number one, the organization is so big, so it's very easy for us to have those local tribes where we're so focused on what we're doing, but it's, it's, it is hard to engage with, okay, how do I work together with maybe something, some other group in the organization where there's a difference or where I haven't built that trust? Um, yeah. So that's, yeah. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. I actually had the opportunity to uh, carry out a small piece of research in a group of people who used to be part of GE, oh, okay. but are no longer. Ooh, juicy. So there was a, <laughs> there was a, <laughs> a, a, a division of uh, GE uh, plastics that, that was uh, okay. sold a long, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, went, uh, and um, the reason I was engaged with them was that we were talking about cultural coherence. And um, after the, that group had gone off to become part of another organization, they went through a three-year cultural transformation program where all of the brand was changed. You know, the laptops were taken away. The chairs were taken away. The office was rebranded. Three years that program mm. carried on. Twelve years after that, I interviewed them about their primary cultural identity. And in that group of people, more than 50% described if they had to describe which culture they belonged to, they described themselves as GE people. Mm. So in total, that was 15 years after they had ceased to be employed by GE. Wow. They described themselves as GE people. Now, GE, GE has a famously strong culture. Yeah. Uh, I'm not passing a value judgment on that. It's a famously <laughs> strong culture. So it's no surprise, you know. But it does speak to the fact that... Um, 
cultural identity isn't something that the organization owns, almost certainly held by individuals and by local tribes in their own flavor. Yeah. Something else that you touched on here was the organizational agility and how the uh, resistance to engage in the differences and things like that can affect the agility. And the reason I think that that is so important to call out is because, of course, agility is something that, again, in the world today with the technology and everything that changes and the skills that, you know, you talked about skills are changing so much. Um, agility is often thought to be something that can be addressed by other things, not necessarily looking at the people first. So I I really like that you pointed that out and I'm interested to hear more about that. So this is a, a really, um, it's a really fascinating uh, aspect of, of work I've been doing, um, you know, since we last spoke. And, uh, you know, being a generalist, I'm able to pursue sort of multiple concurrent pieces. One piece I've been uh, working on predominantly actually with the military in the US has been around disruption and failure. Mm. So trying to understand, you know, how is it that formal systems fail? And, and there's a few really obvious lessons that come out of this. Um, the, the first and probably most unhelpful is that systems that fail are full of people who are pretty much just as brilliant as you and me and everybody else here. You know, that it's a mistake generally to think that idiots fail. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, organizations that fail are very bright, often very high functioning, uh, but they fail anyway. The second thing, which is reasonably clear, is they often fail significantly before they admit or notice their failure, mm. um, sometimes years before. Mm -hmm. And typically, you'll find there's almost nothing that would have prevented them from surviving, mm. except their unwillingness to reframe the context of the organization effectively, they've come up with a course of action, they framed it, they built their understanding of the world, and it turns out it's almost entirely wrong. And they've been almost entirely unable to step out of that new frame. So that's one piece of, of data. I've been sort of holding that and trying to understand it. And in, uh, uh, the reason that that comes out of uh, some of the work in the military is, is I've been working for six years now, looking at um, a lot of specialist piece of, of work uh, looking at uh, so-called black swan events, which are um, disruption outside of known ways. So sort of unknown unknowns is the, the, the language used and the limitations of formal hierarchies to deal with that. So formal hierarchies, organizations are typically very good at dealing with known problems in known spaces. But if their understanding of the space is wrong or if their understanding of the challenge is wrong, it turns out they often have a very fragile type of strength. Uh, I usually describe them as uh, porcelain organizations. Mm. They're extremely strong under compression, but they shatter if you hit them from the side. Failure often carries that within it. They're organizations which have a fantastic codified strength, but somehow the world has moved underneath them and they failed to change. So on the one hand, I had that piece. And on the other hand, what I've been looking at is... Um, the sort of broad narrative around some of the disruptive transnational organizations. Uh, so the conversation about Uber and its supposed toxic culture. And I was working with a, a special forces group in the US and asking them to identify examples of, of failure. And they identified Uber. And I realized everybody always identifies Uber. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the cultural failure. And I was struck by the thought, what if Uber, for all of its faults, what if Uber is only failing if looked at through our lens? What if, in fact, it has a superbly optimized predatory culture? And maybe in times of disruption, a predatory culture is a differentiator. And that got me thinking about, well, what other kind of cultures would there be? Well, there's probably a curious culture. There's probably a culture which permits curiosity. There's probably an experimental culture, uh, a, a culture which is able not just to be curious, but to do something about it. There's probably a safe culture where everybody feels extremely comfortable and quite lethargic. Mm. There's probably a disruptive culture. So I, I started to think about all these different states of culture and thinking, well, if the context of the social age means that many organizations find themselves outside their 
known space, that's a ripe space for disruption. And if they still have a culture which is safe, you know, nice, comfortable, known, maybe um, they're at risk. And maybe what they need to do is understand what can they learn from these other organizations and what can they learn from the nature of disruption and failure about cultural agility. So as an organization, how can we hold to be true multiple concurrent versions of culture? Because what you see as organizations start to stagnate, as they lose the ability to innovate and they become constrained and unable to change, they're often reacting with the wrong cultural response to the right type of stimulus. So they know they need to be more innovative, but they silence weak voices. They know they need to change, but they anchor people into structures of power and reward that keep them exactly where they are. Good people in good organizations doing good things create the conditions in which organizations are unable to change. And that's, um, I'm just putting the final touches at the moment to a, a book I'll try to get out later this year called The Change Handbook, Building the Socially Dynamic Organization, which is based, mm. uh, built, built out of all of this work. Oh, just that's to great, understand yeah. How do we get stuck? <laughs> when you're talking about the good people and the good organizations who are creating the conditions preventing this, I mean, that is really impactful. And the part that you had said about um, they frame out their their perspective of of what's going on and the approach that they're going to take. And what we find often is that when that doesn't work, when it does fail, they're not creating those congruent cultures. They, they just shift to a new one and then they box themselves right back into a frame. So even though it's, they're changing and this is supposed to be new and improved, you see the same thing going on. And um, I've recognized that cycle a lot yeah. And, and the funny thing is that, you know, you, 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 as you said there, we have these two aspects of the organization. We have the, the formal structure mm -hmm. and you can change that all you like. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yours. <laughs> so right. if you uh, if you own the organization, if you run the organization, if you have formal power in the organization, you can change the structure. Mm -hmm. The unfortunate truth is that capability and engagement and trust don't live in the formal structure. Yeah. So you can change the functional aspects of an organization, but to truly change you have to evolve the social system. And to evolve the social system isn't a matter of throwing around formal power and weight. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a matter of creating a more interconnected entity. I'll, I'll give you an example. The, one of the most interesting projects I've worked on um, last year into this year, a global, global organization, a, a, a technology-related company, over 100,000 people, so big, successful, dynamic. Mm -hmm. We're running a an innovation program for them based around the states of innovation work. And as part of that, I've been taking these people out to uh, over 150 different organizations around the world. So going out and seeing innovation in the world in all sorts of different structures from, you know, the big companies building drones and moving to automation through to startups in China and Singapore in New York, Boston, Oxford, you know, all over the place. And Going into this program, the big concern of the, the project sponsors was that they, they need more innovation and they didn't feel that the, the leaders in the business were able to, you know, effectively, they didn't feel they were bright or brilliant or capable enough to bring that innovation to them. What I found was as, as people went out, it turns out they had no trouble in recognizing innovation. They had no trouble in figuring out what needed to be done. They didn't particularly have a problem in seeing what needed to change in their organization. But when I surveyed them and asked them what the most likely outcome was, they said the most likely outcome is we'll fail. And the reason we'll fail is that we have to pitch our ideas to change this organization back into a layer of executives who have no understanding or willingness to change because it will disempower them. They exist in a structural empire which will be disempowered by the change we need to make. Mm. And, and that's often very true, because to be really clear, th those executives aren't bad people. They're brilliant people mm -hmm. who've held that organization steady, profitable, and successful in an age which is substantially gone. And the people who've gone out and they've come up with these ideas, they're also brilliant and successful people. And between them, they've engineered themselves into a space where everybody knows that the organization needs to change 
and nobody's brave enough to stick their head up above the parapet to find enough weight and momentum behind their voice to create the seeds for change to occur. And the organisation as a whole remains constrained, well-meaning, well-intentioned, but ultimately lethargic and unable to change. So what do you, I'm interested to see um, or hear from you, like, in terms of that power structure, there's obviously a fear there then that the people who have power are going to have that taken away. What kinds of things, and and you may not have the answer for this at this point, but what even hypotheses do you have or have you seen anything that's been tried to take away that element of the issue of power? So, um, Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, I, I mean, I'm working through with a number of global organizations the underlying frameworks and methodologies that I'm using in the change handbook. And, and put simply, it's, it's more an evolution of power. And what it's about is this. In, in the old world, in a formal structure, your power sat nested within the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And as you become more successful and typically more senior, you get more power. In the new world, your power and this is what I explore in the work on social leadership, your power is likely to be held partly in a formal system, Mm -hmm. but substantially in a social system. So to be effective, your formal power frames and contextualizes what you do, but your social power gives you the ability to hear weak voices, to collaborate at scale, to effect true change. So in simple terms, the way you unblock an organization that's constrained is you provide people who carry great formal power with the, ability, with the opportunity and ability to build power and reputation in the social space. Mm. So instead of losing power, they just transfer it. So it's partly held in their reputation and ability to nurture and develop communities. So it's a different type of power, but it's still very real power. Right, yeah. And the second thing you do is you interconnect the organization. Because the interesting thing about trust, when we talked about that earlier, we talked about it collapsing into local type tribal units. And in fact, the whole organization works like that. There often is brilliance in an organization, but it's held at a hyper local level. I ran an interesting session in the UK with over 40 of the most senior military leaders, asking them about how they come to be effective. And one of them stood up and said, I'm extremely effective. Um, so not necessarily demonstrating the humility of leadership, but if that's, <laughs> if that's how it is, then, you know, call it out. So he said, I'm extremely effective. He said, I'll tell you exactly what, what I do to be effective. He said, firstly, I go out and do the thing that needs to be done. I get the job done. Mm-hmm. He said, and I break whatever rules I need to break to make that happen. He said, my specific competency is retrospectively fitting my actions back into the rule framework of the organization. And he said, I'm only able to do that because I'm surrounded by a community that covers my back as I do so. And that was quite interesting. What was more interesting was there were two old guys next to me and one whispered to the other, well, he's brave to admit that. And I thought, here's the thing. We all want our military to be highly effective. Um, I don't think anybody would dispute Mm -hmm. that. And yet here I am listening to one of the most senior leaders saying, in order to be effective, firstly, I have to break the rules. And secondly, I have to be brave. Well, nobody would question the bravery, but is that really what we want in our organizations? You know, do we want people to have to be brave and break rules in order to, to, to be effective? Of course we don't. And yet very often what happens is people do break rules, mm-hmm. not bad people trying to wreck an organization, good people trying to be efficient and effective and learn and experiment and prototype and discover that freedom they want. And they do so hyper locally. They work out how to do things on the job right down low. In the, when they form their primary cultural alignment, they work out who they can trust, who they can turn to, who they can ask for help and support. And you can even measure this. I, I've carried out this mm. research uh, recently in the National Health Service in the UK, as well as with several military organizations across the US and the UK and one pharmaceutical company. And they all had almost identical results. So the first thing I did is ask people, how often are you effective because of your formal power alone? Um, it averaged that they and uh, as how often because of your formal power how often through the permission and consensus and support of others averaged out 97% of the time people said they were effective through the permission consensus and support of others 3% of the time they were effective by telling people what to do now it's slightly disingenuous because i suspect that that 3% of formal power and consequence contextualizes the 97% of consensus 
But it, it certainly tells me that to be effective as a leader or a social leader, we need the permission and consensus of others. And that takes you into a second question, which is, is it enough to have the permission and consensus of my tribe who I trust? Well, probably not, because the, the thing is, our tribal structures create an environment where we hear the things we want to hear. Mm. And hearing the things we want to hear is the foundation of disruption and failure. A skill for leaders has to be to reach out, to engage in difference, to engage in communities they disagree with, to engage with respect, but with difference. And that's something which uh, I'm really focused on, actually. I'm building a whole certification at the moment around storytelling and social leadership yeah. and understanding how we use stories to engage, to surface difference and dissent in our own organizations and constructively carry that forward. And it's a fascinating area. No, it really is, because I think, especially just when you just mentioned specifically storytelling, that's something that even our own, our own organization right now is recognizing, you know, storytelling is important. But I don't think that deeper connection has been made as to truly the broader impacts that that can have or how it can become more part of a strategy. Because my next question was going to be, in this um, dichotomy of your, your formal power versus your social power, um, we it seems to be that there's more resistance or less value placed on that social power aspect. And I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if it's a, a skill thing. People don't think they have the skills to be socially impactful or um, maybe it's business pressures or organizational pressures where the most senior leaders, even if they think that that might be something to focus on, you know, they're going to be held more accountable for something else. So then we get into this, you know, the social systems, not just within the organization, but then also in the broader environment and all this, all this stuff um, that does get really complex. But I'm just wondering um, if you have seen what specifically some of these leaders, um, I guess, cite as the resistant, like what are the reasons that some of them are resistant to building that social power versus some of the more formal power and, and how, how can that be changed? Hmm. Well, it's, it's really interesting. I, um, uh, one of the things that that, that always that I always feel sort of particularly happy about, I feel extremely fortunate in, in what I do. And one of the reasons I feel fortunate is because uh, I can be wrong pretty much as much as I like. <laughs> um, I, I, I have no, you know, kind of nobody's going to fire me for being wrong. And in, in fact, some quite significant chunks of my own work have been wrong. And I'm, I'm OK with that. Um, and when I wrote the Social Leadership Handbook in 20, uh, 2014, I wrote that communities have shared value and shared purpose. That mm -hmm. was my definition of a community. And today, I think that's almost entirely wrong mm. because because I've been doing a lot of work that shows many communities are, are actually held in opposition. They don't have shared values, but they're absolutely sure they disagree with something that's going on over there. We've, we've seen plenty of that emerge uh, through oh, politics and, yeah. and in other organizations. So now the only definition I'm comfortable with is to say a community is an entity of exclusion. That's pretty much the only oh, definition wow. I can feel yeah. comfortable with. Yeah. A, com a, a community is defined by its edges. That, you know, at the point when I tell you, you can no longer be in my community, my community becomes coherent. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's interesting to me. A significant amount of social power is actually held in opposition and dissent. So that was one thing that's influenced me. The other thing which is fascinating is I, 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 I been very fortunate that sort of as time goes by, I get to engage with people at progressively more more senior levels of different organizations. And I suppose I, I've always held on to this notion that is kind of fostered into us as children, I guess, that at some point you're going to reach the heady heights of power where somebody knows what on earth they're doing. And, and the thing I've discovered is that, you know, no matter how far up an organization you go, funnily enough, it's just full of people. It's full of people who are generally quite reflective, curious, and fairly uncertain and confused. I mean, they're confident, yeah. but they actually hold a great deal of uncertainty. And the weird thing is, the further up a system you go, the less permission you have to be uncertain. So mm. we've actually engineered organizations. We've engineered political systems and organizational systems where the very people that we want to be curious and engaged and creative have almost the least permission to be wrong and the highest consequence of so doing. And that's a bit perverse when you think about it. Yeah. And so 
you know, how do stories feed into this? Well, you know, the ways that we can use stories with humility to engage can be incredibly simple. Um, in organizations, finding mechanisms whereby senior leaders can, you know, can, can find someone, uh, uh, forgive me for saying, but, you know, someone like yourself who's working hard to make the organization better. You and your peers and colleagues, I have no doubt, across the organization. But you hear something, you hear of somebody doing something good and you, you pick up a pencil or a pen, you get a postcard and you write a, a, a postcard to that person saying, I would, I heard you are doing this thing to help us succeed. I would like to thank you for your energy, time and effort for doing that. And also, if you don't mind, have you got 15 minutes so that I can just bounce an idea off you? It's that humility in leadership, yeah. an ability to reach down through an organization. You know, if I'm at the top of the organization and I think you're an idiot and I can learn nothing from you, right. then I'm the, I'm the idiot. Right. I mean, plain and simple. I'll be surrounded by people who either are openly hostile to me or are telling me I'm right. And neither of those things is particularly useful. What one of the organizations I'm working with at the moment has a, a series of executives who won't talk to each other it's literally like i'm back in kindergarten mm. they simply won't maintain a conversation with each other they'll right. be in the same room but they won't have any conversation with any kind of humility and a willingness to learn they have no space to learn mm -hmm. and that's the win you know if you can be a, a strong formal leader but if you will also have a humility to engage across the organization to open up your communities to diversify your community and to interconnect then you might well learn the things you need to learn to, to affect change. You'll find a different type of power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love this part that you said about the further up you go, the less permission people have to be, to be uncertain or wrong and how, if you are, the consequences are higher. And leading into that, how leaders can be willing to ask for help, I think feeds into also the democratization of creativity and innovation. Um, so what have you learned about that in terms of not just me as a leader going to an, an individual and, and that level of things, but how is an organization can a leader or, or how can just organization overall start adopting more of that democratization approach so that those mm -hmm. kinds of, um, I guess, more siloed ways of working don't, don't have don't occur so much with so many of those downfalls. So I think what I'd say is this, um, the, the context of work has changed. I'm generalizing slightly, but sort of, uh, give me, no, I'll yeah. claim a permission to do this. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it used to be, uh, that our organizations uh, were mechanisms of collectivism and effect at scale. And the, the way they achieved effect at scale was by bringing people on board, training them, mm -hmm. certifying, accrediting them, and then they were mechanisms of consistency, conformity, and replicability. Just do the same thing that, to the mm. same quality as other people and we'll get there. Yeah. Now, now, in that world, we bought people's time. So if I employed you, I paid you for your time, and you turned up and you used your time to do the work as I had trained you to do it. Mm -hmm. And that was good. Mm -hmm. Today, I think, things have shifted quite significantly. So, in fact, you can look at multiple currencies of engagement. Your time, I can buy for money, but your invested, invested engagement, your invested trust, I can't buy for money, funnily enough. It's not, it doesn't operate in a currency of trust. It operates typically in a currency of respect and recognition and pride and trust. So, if you want people to invest themselves, to bring their creativity to work, you need to create the conditions and the currencies by which they will do so. Now, how does that relate to democratization? Well, it works like this. Historically, organizations owned many of the mechanisms, much of the technology of creativity and, and um, prototyping and innovation and production. You know, if I wanted to be innovative, I kind of had to do that within the context of an organization. But today, technology has significantly democratized all of that. I can gain access to any, pretty much any organizational process that I want and any community 
that can provide technical or logistical support that I want. And I can do that without belonging to any organization whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Almost everything which used to be owned by organizations is no longer owned by them. So my investment decision becomes this. Do I invest myself in the organization or do I invest myself in kickstarting or crowdfunding a record that I'm going to record with my new band and crowdsource the artwork in amongst my community and just have great fun, just be fulfilled and creative and innovative and satisfied and proud all outside of work. Mm -hmm. And then I turn up with a smile on my face because I'm a happy person. I turn up, I tip up and I do my eight hours at work. And then I go and invest my energy elsewhere. The challenge for organizations is to earn creative investment, to earn not just functional investment. Functional investment will give you an organization that can tip along doing the things it does now. But true investment, you know, an inv invested energy, invested trust will give us the, the magic that we're seeking. So the real impact of this democratization is that it's given individuals far more choices to where they spend their energy. And if we want them to spend their energy with us, we'll have to earn the right. We no longer have any lever of power over individuals or any realistic expectation that people will just spontaneously bring their best ideas to us. Yeah. So one thing that I know a lot of leaders um, will want to know about all of these things you know, that sounds great that there's a lot of these great impacts that we can have if we're doing some of these things and thinking about things differently. But how do you measure that um, when it comes to earning creative investment? I mean, what how do you answer that question? I'm sure people ask you that. Um, you know, how do you figure out if people have put that creative investment? And I mean, part of what I really liked about that is that we do try to think of this in the same way of when people are spending time on our on Brilliant You, for example, our learning site, that that is sort of our our measurement because if we're getting their time, essentially they're paying us in a way, you know, with their attention yeah. and their engagement. Um, so I'm just curious as to how how you position that and if there's any specific things that you take back to organizations when they have that question. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you two answers to that. So the first is going to be a really comfortable, safe answer that I would normally lead with when I'm talking to an executive team. Mm -hmm. So a, a known answer in a known space. And the second will be a, a slightly quirkier answer. So the, the, the first way you will know if you are being successful is because you will be more successful. You know, ultimately, right. the organization will be able to be more creative, more innovative and earn more money. And how will we know that's happening? Well, we will see an unblocking of ideas, we'll see an organization which is able to achieve momentum. Momentum is pretty much the measure of change. So we will see the emergence of communities which are engaged. We will see stories flowing through an organization. We will see people responding to stories. And you, and you can, uh, you know, I mean, for the sake of time, I won't get into it now, but you can measure all of this. Sure. Um, for, for example, I've been using a cultural readiness for change diagnostic with uh, three organizations surveying over a thousand people in each letting us measure that. You look at how people respond to the formal stories leaders tell, how they feel the organization will gain momentum. You can, you can quantify uh, all of this by measuring the social temperature of the organization and the hard outputs of the organization. So um, practically, you can do that through storytelling approaches and through um, traditional measures of project success, actually. You know, if you're... If you're um, measuring it by output. The second thing you can do is think about other parallel currencies of engagement. So I've been doing this digitally up to this point by using um, techniques to let you, let you measure things like the flow of thanks across an organization, the flow of empathy across an organization. Mm. And, and you do this by, well, I said I've done it previously using um, apps that let people say, for example, at the end of the week, you have three tokens of thanks of thank yous to allocate. Who would you give those thank yous to? Mm -hmm. You have another token, which is inspiration. Who will you give that token to? You have another token that you can name. And some, some people say, well, I'm going to call this a challenge token, or I'm going to give this to this person. And if you, if you then measure those, 
Uh, if you look at how they cluster across an organization, you typically start to see people who are nodes within a network. Yeah. There's a lot of challenge coming over here. There's a lot of empathy over here. There's been a good deal of coaching over here. What I'm doing at the moment is a rather lovely, uh, well, I'm rather excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I sort of very, um, uh, I'm very proud because uh, Apple have adopted the social leadership work. Oh, uh, globally, awesome. Retail that's network, great. Yeah. Nice to us, you know. It's uh, we are still a very small, uh, yeah. a small organization. Um, but one of the things I'm building out of that is um, I've been writing, as you know, some of my work I call the one percent work. So it's it's work that's a little bit um, out on the edges of things, mm-hmm. but I'm trying it. And I've been writing about the forest of social leadership, organization as an ecosystem. Some of the tall trees are your formal leaders. Some of the tall trees are your social leaders. But the forest isn't just the trees, it's the shade that they cast, it's the leaves that they drop, mm. it's the leaf mold on the ground, which nurtures the forest, but is is made out of all the things that have failed and fallen. And so I've been working with a local potter and with a, um, a, a bronze a foundry in London to create some ceramic, handmade, beautiful ceramic leaves, the leaves of social leadership. And these are are tokens, and a token is something that doesn't carry financial value. It carries honorific value, and um, an honorific currency is, it's not just a a type of financial currency, it's a fundamentally different type of currency. In fact, they they exist in opposition to each other. So the, the, the social leadership leaves will be given as gifts. So you'll reach out to somebody and say, you know, that you have supported me. You've done so with kindness, and I give you this leaf of kindness. And what I'm really looking at, and it's, it's, I know that it's sort of nonsense in many ways, but it, it's people being able to see and understand this drift of leaves they may have across their desk. You know, a leaf of challenge, three leaves of kindness, but the leaves have to be honorific. So you can't buy a leaf. Mm. You can't demand a leaf, and you don't get given a leaf at the end of your annual performance review. You get given it by your community through the actions that you take within the community. So we're sort of playing with some of those ideas because you can also measure success through the health, the vibrancy, the fairness of your organizational culture. And maybe we should do both. And is some of that, um, when you're talking about the flow of thanks and the flow of empathy, are you doing that kind of through like social network analysis type methodologies? Well, funnily enough, um, social network analysis is almost my least favorite way of doing okay, it. Okay, awesome. Um, I'll, I'll tell you why, because um, it, there, are diff- there are different approaches to it. Um, and, and, of course, technology continues to move on. Yeah. Um, some social network analysis measures interaction. And it measures interaction on known platforms. And most of my research shows clearly that, firstly, interaction isn't the thing. It's the quality of interaction which is important. Right. And secondly, is that the and you, you can argue that you can measure the quality of interaction by doing a large scale machine learning led analysis of the text which is used right. on those platforms. Yeah, which is actually it, just to quickly interrupt you, that's actually something that I'm interested in this because we're kind of doing that through our performance development system. And it's super interesting to do it. But the, the reason why I think it gives us part of a picture, not a whole picture, is this. In the uh, National Health Service, uh, uh-huh. I've done some explicit research around communities, asking people the communities, uh, the technologies they use to collaborate every day to be effective. And they identified 17 different technologies, 16 of which exist outside the organization, and they are explicitly forbidden from using through their data protection and privacy policies. Right. 16 of the 17 technologies they use, they're forbidden from using. Wow. When I repeated that research in um, the military in the U.S., the number one technology they used in order to be effective every day was WhatsApp, which they're explicitly forbidden from using. When I repeated that in a pharmaceutical company, it's exactly the same result. So one thing is that one technology will likely only give us part of a picture. The second reason is that people expressed in the trust research that they trust formal technology about 30% less than they trust social technology. So, yeah. for example, a work email, email address, is trusted less than a personal email address. It doesn't mean that people don't use it and they're highly effective with it. It just means they're slightly aware that somebody else is reading it yeah. or maybe analyzing it. So 
I think you're looking at the right areas, and I, and I, you know, I work with a number of organisations which are doing interesting work, um, doing analysis of um, the content, the text on their social platforms at scale. But you have to wade into this carefully. If you ask communities, um, and, and I've asked this in the research very clearly, what they say is this: if my engagement is helping others be effective, only 14% of people want more money. If my engagement is helping the organization earn more money, nearly 60% of people want more money. And so the reason I, I, I say that is because if we just wade in and start analyzing the text that people are using on these platforms, if we start using that as if it's a natural resource which we can pick up to the organization, but we don't take into account who owns the conversation and where does the value out of that go, we can find that we end up betraying our own communities, mm. and that's quite significant. Yeah. So it, you, we have to tackle both sides of it. What can we do technically? But in that context of building a more socially dynamic organisation, how will we recognise and reward, both formally and socially, the people who are helping us to achieve this effect? Yeah. So how, in terms of the formal technology not being trusted as much, or maybe even getting more visibility to the informal technology. I mean, is there a way to do that? I mean, how do you, how do we how do we truly yeah. figure out what's what's really going on then? So, um I, I can tell you some of the uh, give you a few ideas of um of the ways that you can do it and some of the things I've tried. So the the um the first thing is uh you can understand that different technologies should vary certain criteria to do with the permanence of what's written there and the rule set that applies in the space. So, for example, in a conversational space like Yammer or, or indeed WhatsApp, conversations are typically very synchronous, very rapid, and should probably be highly disposable. Or certainly, we should seek the permission, and I don't just mean by an opt-in box, I mean, you know, in a very meaningful way, seek the permission of people to as to how we use any data mm -hmm. generated within that. Mm -hmm. Uh, a co-creative space, again, you know, where we're asking people to problem solve needs a very different set of rules applied. Uh, a formal assessment space, for example, a compliance space may be very permanent and, very, and carry very high consequence. What I can tell you is this, where I've um, varied that condition. So in a global petrochemical company, I was able to run 10 sequential cohorts um, through 10 different conditions using uh, sometimes the same, sometimes different technologies, and we varied a condition on each. By moving that group from using a formal social collaboration space across to using WhatsApp and private LinkedIn groups and private WordPress groups, mm -hmm. we drove up engagement something like sixfold. But by simple measures like giving people the ability to set the rules, uh, we were able to or to have a voice in setting the rules. Mm -hmm. We were able to drive up engagement 16-fold. Mm. And I'll give you an example of what that looks like. We asked people, as you're carrying out your conversations in this social collaborative space, is it okay to have spectators, so an HR team or a compliance team looking at what you're doing? Some of those groups said it's absolutely fine. Some of those groups quite interestingly said, no spectators, but those people are willing to dive in with us and help solve the problem. Mm. So they said, you can come, but you have to be a participant. And some of them said, you can't look at this space because this is our problem-solving space. And so this has to be hidden, but we will commit to sharing our results out of this space. And what I learned from that is there probably is no one rule set. It's almost certainly the act of having ownership, or at least as a voice in it, that gives people the trust and the confidence to engage in it. Um, and I think that's important. Um, in, it's keeping in mind that engagement is very different from transaction. So at the point at which your community becomes coherent, becomes effective, is probably the point at which it feels it has some control over its own destiny. So maybe those are areas to yeah. explore further. Well, and if I if I'm hearing it right, also engagement doesn't mean agreement. Um, is that accurate? Yeah. So it's you have a voice because one of the questions I was going to ask is, okay, well, 
you can create a community or a space where people have a say in the rules, but how, you know, there's so many people who disagree on what the rules should be, right? Like, so how do you, how does that work? But it doesn't necessarily, as long as they have that say and that input and feel that they're valued, even if they don't always, their ideas aren't the idea all the time, then that creates the engagement, even if it's not always agreed with. Yeah, what what I would say is this. Um, I don't think that uh, anytime soon I'm going to write a book with all the answers in sure. for the simple reason that, uh, firstly, I don't know the answers. And secondly, I don't think there are any answers. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, tell you why. Because in the formal organization operates according to rules we understand pretty well. We know how to pay people. We know how to recruit people. We know how to put together competency frameworks and development mechanisms. We know how to do uh, quality assurance. We know how to do logistics and distribution. You know, we kind of know how, how organizations work. Mm -hmm. The social side of the organization is, is radically complicated because it's a social system. And quite frankly, it's hard enough for me to maintain my own social system, my network of friends and relations and relatives and in-laws. You know, we, yeah. we, we, we all manage it, but <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like we have a rule book to do it by. Yeah. Uh, we find our way carefully. We find our way with respect and humility and the occasional bloody nose along the way, <laughs> you know. And I suspect that's the type of approach we have to take in organizations. Yeah. What we're talking about are formal organizations. They're yeah. always going to have a strong formal structure, and quite rightly so, because yep. it does amazing things. But they're probably going to have to find the humility and capability to listen to certain social voices. They're going to have to recognize that engagement in this new world isn't going to be based purely on formal structural power. At least some of what we're going to have to do is relinquish control. At least some of what we're going to have to do is engage more fairly. And with greater humility. And, and that's probably the space to be exploring. We don't have to throw everything away. In fact, just the opposite. We should keep the very best of what we do. But I'll tell you one thing for sure. I've never worked with any organization anywhere in the world that puts as much effort into deconstructing system, process, rule and control as it does into building it. Organizations are appalling at throwing away outdated mechanisms and rules of control at the very time when they need to be learning new things we're probably only going to create the headspace if we also throw away some of the old things so take the best of the old forward be unafraid to challenge received wisdom learn what we can throw away and have the humility to learn the things that we need to learn yeah i love that that's great <laughs> Um, I think this is great. I mean, we've touched on all of some of the most critical topics here that I know we're interested in. And of course, as always, it's like we're only scratching the surface. I could talk to you for days and days, I'm sure. Um, but is there anything else that you would add to this that we haven't talked about yet to kind of get people thinking more about these types of things or, or things that maybe our listeners could change or think about more as they're going about their daily work and trying to impact maybe their own cultures and tribes and things like that. I'll share two, two, two things with you, I guess, which are the things most on my mind at the moment. Um, the, uh, the Trust Sketchbook is positioned as a guided, reflective journey. Yeah. It's, it's a book which is, is half-drawn, half-complete for people to complete. And that really reflects where I am at the moment, which is a recognition that quite often the value comes not in reading supposed answers it comes in making the journey mm. and that's influencing a lot of my learning design and approach to work at the moment our role isn't to have the answers it's to create the space and structure for people to go through to make that journey in good company and to find their own views and answers it turns out we don't need everybody to think the same what we actually need to do is find ways to relish and value the difference and the second thing that I've become really interested in, and it's you'll see it threading through all my work on the socially dynamic organization, is interconnectivity. Thinking about how are we connected into which communities to hear which views to reinforce what things we're already doing? How can we find spaces to engage in our difference and dissent? And I, I, I tell you what, I ran a session 
I, I, in in the US with uh, some uh, senior uh, political and military leaders recently, an informal session with 12 people. And I was in a room with people, uh, some of whose views around uh, climate change, for example, I would disagree with quite strongly. Um, I would say that because I'm a scientist, and, you know, I'm I'm siding with the uh, I'm siding with the climate scientists on this. Yeah. But, you know, the funny thing is that if, if somebody writes something to me and it's a view I strongly disagree with, I, I'm, I will probably just dismiss it. You know, it's just frankly, I can't be bothered to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet by sitting with somebody and writing a story of difference where we documented um, the ways in which we differ. What we actually ended up doing was surfacing some of the underlying um, themes and issues. And and weirdly enough, we didn't find a lot that we agreed on, but we certainly found quite a few common areas we thought were worth exploring further. Mm-hmm. And it was hard. You know, frankly, it was hard work. It was painful. It was upsetting and it was annoying. Yeah. Um, but you know what? It was actually quite constructive as well. And that, I think, is what we need to focus on to focus on becoming more interconnected, not just the people we know and like, but more interconnected throughout the organisation and indeed throughout our society with views that we disagree with, but disagree respectfully. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right, because even if we are able to respectfully accept that people disagree with us, we don't usually spend the time digging into that. We kind of say, okay, you know, we have this goal, even though we disagree, we'll find a way to move forward or find a compromise rather than spending that time to say, okay, why, why is this? Or let's just kind of spend some more time and sit with this a little bit more. Um, so that's, that's, it's really important. And I, I definitely echo your sentiment about the trust sketchbook and the value that people can find in that. So I do, um, I've had, I got some of uh, Julian's previous books, the trust one I am eagerly awaiting, but I have seen the others and um, the first of all, if you haven't followed Julian, the graphics that he does, I mean, I don't know, we've even talked about this before. He, you crank out so much content and the drawings, it's just amazing to me. So if you're a visual person for sure, but I think anybody will find value in some of that. And then also the workbook aspect of it. So the prompts, the questions, um, and the space to really write and reflect. It's it's a really unique aspect, I think, of of the work that you put out. So I do encourage people to look at that. Um, The books are all on Amazon. So we will put in the show notes the names of each of the books and things like that. And again, if you just want to follow Julian's blog, you can do that at julianstodd.wordpress.com. You could also follow Julian and Sea Salt Learning uh, Twitter. You can do at Julian Stodd and at Sea Salt Learning. And the website itself for Julian's uh, organization is uh, seasaltlearning.com. So you can learn a lot more about what he does and, again, links to his blogs and other things through, through that site. So thank you so much, Julian. I, uh, again, immensely grateful for having you back. Very exciting conversation. I think this was really great. and People will take a lot out of this. Well, thanks again for, for having me along and, uh, you know, keep up all the uh, the great work you're doing there. Yeah. Really yeah, you too. Again, I'm excited to keep following you and I'm sure we'll stay in touch. So that's great. And by the way, it seems like we got the uh, the wardrobe memo today and <laughs> <laughs> we both got our green podcasting shirts on. <laughs> Quite right. It's a green day today. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Thanks so much, Great. Julian, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Bill. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening. <laughs>